Hello, Shockers, and welcome to the Sunflower News Podcast. I'm Audrey Cordy. I'm a graduate assistant at the Elliott School, and I'm a reporter for the Sunflower. The Sunflower News Podcast provides coverage of recent news and events on and around campus. Episodes will also bring you original content and coverage through interviews and analysis of important issues at Wichita State University. Here's your weekly news rundown. In December, the university notified the campus community of a security incident involving unauthorized access to a Wichita State server containing information of former and current students, faculty, and staff. After an investigation of the breach, a leading computer forensic firm found that a server that was compromised during the breach contained names, email addresses, dates of birth, and in some cases, social security numbers, according to a university statement. David Miller, interim chief information officer, said in his statement that all affected individuals would receive a letter to their home address. The university is offering identity theft protection to all potentially affected individuals at no charge, according to the university website. On Friday morning, Wichita State students walking in front of the Radigan Student Center saw a host of messages written in sidewalk chalk about reproduction and the right to life. The largest message read, we are the pro-life generation. Vice President for Student Affairs Terry Hall said the group responsible, Shockers for Life, according to their Facebook page, will be asked to remove the chalkings because they didn't have the necessary permission for the activity. Hall said she believes this policy needs to be updated and is too restrictive. Shockers for Life is a registered student organization at Wichita State. Secretary of Labor Delia Garcia visited Wichita State Thursday evening, giving the fearlessly female keynote speech in the CAC Theater as part of the Women in the Workplace events taking place on campus last week. The event was sponsored by the Student Government Association to help celebrate Women's History Month. Garcia spoke about how she got where she is and gave advice to those looking to follow in her footsteps. On Wednesday, the Student Government Association Budget and Finance Committee recommended a downvote on the proposed student fees bill after senators voiced their concerns about a 1.5% student fee increase. Instead, the committee would like to see either a 1% increase or a 1.5% increase without sweeping reserves from student organizations. The bill had its first read at Wednesday's Senate meeting, and senators will debate and vote on the bill this week. COVID-19, otherwise known as the novel coronavirus, continues to spread across the globe. Worldwide, the number of cases has surpassed 100,000. As of Saturday afternoon, at least 352 people with the COVID-19 illness have been treated in 28 states, according to a New York Times database. At least 17 patients with the virus have died in the U.S. On Friday, nine states in the U.S. confirmed their first cases. In a press conference with Governor Laura Kelly on Saturday, the Kansas Department of Health and Environment said that there are people currently under investigation for the virus in the state. In Johnson County, one woman has received a presumptive positive, authorities said, to treat it as a confirmed case. Coming up, I sit down with Camille Childers, Director of Student Health Services, and Ann Berger, the Associate Director of Study Abroad and Exchange Programs 
to discuss COVID-19 and the Wichita State community. Welcome back to the Sunflower News Podcast. I'm Audrey Cordy. Today I am here with Camille Childers, Director for Student Health Services, and Ann Berger, the Associate Director of Study Abroad and Exchange Programs. And we have a special guest journalist in the room with us, Matthew Kelly, Managing Editor of the Sunflower. So we are here to talk about something that I think every sector of the planet is very interested in right now, and that is COVID-19, otherwise known as coronavirus. Camille, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what the university response to COVID-19 looks like already or could look like in the future from a health perspective? Okay. Well, that's a very good question, and it's definitely something that's on the mind of a lot of people, faculty, staff, and students. So right now, um, given the fact that on this day, I can tell you what's going on now, but depending on when this is broadcast, it may be a different scenario. Um, Right now, because there's no current active cases of COVID-19 in Kansas, um, we are in our preparation and planning phase, which is pretty normal for a university or even a business or even a small home in your own personal home looking at how would I handle this situation if it came up. The university has an emergency operations plan, which is available online. We also have within our business continuity planning program called BOLD, we have a pandemic planning team that's been identified since we started using that program. And that includes um, representation from across campus, from student health, academic affairs, um, finance, HR. We have um, students on this team. We also have housing, obviously, for a pandemic situation, um, just a whole wide variety of campus departments that are represented on this pandemic planning team. We met the first time last, I guess, Monday this week, and we have uh, future meetings planned already. That meeting included representatives from Sedgwick County Emergency Management and Public Health to help guide us on this direction. Uh, While the university can make plans based on the current situation, because this is a public health emergency rather than something like a tornado or fire on campus, the direction that the university goes and the guidance that we follow will come from both state and local health departments. So that's where we're at with planning. We're looking at individual plans for departments. I know that there's been discussions on multiple levels about how this would happen, what it would look like. I fully understand and empathize that people want answers and they want to know action plans. I've been asked that, what exactly are we doing? The reality is this is a fluid situation. So until we know what we're dealing with, we can't really have a standardized action plan. For individual students, though, who um, are concerned, who want um, some sort of actionable um, advice, other than washing hands, what do students need to be doing? I think they need to be considering in um, their personal environment what that would look like. Washing hands, we say a lot, and that's a public health message, and the reality is um, this is a virus. This is a virus like influenza, like a cold. So keeping yourself healthy through hand washing, through maybe not shaking hands, you know, bumping elbows like they're showing on TV, or um, talking about how do I keep myself healthy, those are important things. So staying home if you're sick, 
or limiting your contact with people that are sick. If you have family members that are ill, try to distance yourself from them. Whether it's right now, we have no COVID identified in Kansas, but they could just have the flu. So the same kind of viral um, contaminants or viral me or measures you would take to protect yourself from any virus would apply here. But you also want to consider, you know, there was a really good article um, based on the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit that they built up there when they did that, and people were asking them a lot of questions like, what can I do to get ready? Well, it's kind of like if you have the flu at home, what would you do? Well, you probably want to have some Tylenol around. You probably have some at your home already, something to reduce fever, aches, and pains. You know, just like when you would have the flu, you probably have some chicken soup around too, those kind of things. So when we talk about personal preparedness, it's looking at, do I have the kind of things I need at home if I would get a case of influenza? That probably would apply if I was diagnosed with COVID-19 because it's similar symptoms. Do I have um, an emergency contact listed in my phone? If for some reason I need to get a hold of my doctor or um, I get sick at school and I need to call somebody, do I have information listed in my phone? If I go to the doctor's office, do I know what my allergies and my health conditions are? You know, we deal with younger students who maybe have not been to the doctor on their own. So we ask them all the time, make sure you understand your health history because those are questions we're gonna ask and make sure you know what medications you're on and what you're allergic to. The other thing is just to be aware. There's a lot of news coming out. So I think it's important to keep track of what's going on and to notice what is happening in your community and your state and your, your country and across the globe. But I also think you need to be sure that your sources are appropriate. When you're coming, oh. yes, <laughs> you would know that well. <laughs> so when you're talking about health things, you want to make sure that your source is not what you saw on Facebook or what you saw on social media. It could be that those social media outlets are coming from the CDC and the Kansas Department of Health and Environment or Sedgwick County Health Department. So you want to make sure that your sources of information are accurate. There's a new term they're using now, an infodemic as far as the fact that there's so much media about this topic to make sure that what you're taking in and what you're believing is accurate. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about some of the basics here. What are the symptoms that people should be looking out for? Okay. Well, COVID-19, if you are a person that is suspected of having it, your primary symptoms are gonna be cough, fever, it's kind of, um, they're describing it as more of a lower respiratory tract infection. Um, the data that we're getting as of today is that that's what we're looking for. Will this become something more? Possibly. You know, as we get more cases going on and we get more information on what is being presented in the disease process, um, we'll have better information in the medical community as a whole to share. But right now, what we know for sure is that it presents as a lower respiratory tract infection, cough and fever are primarily the symptoms we look for. Right now, most of those cases, um, for example, if you look on the CDC or KDHE's website, as far as what they're identifying as people at risk or people that they would call a person under investigation, they're partnering that mostly with exposure. So the, if you have been to an area that has high risk factors, typically identified by the CDC travel notices, or you've been around someone that has 
been actively diagnosed or has symptoms, then you are at greater risk than the general public. So with 100,000 confirmed cases worldwide now and spring break around the corner, um, what's some advice uh, for students as they prepare to kind of go off on their own? Uh, what precautions need to be taken? What would you advise uh, against? Um, yeah, could you speak to that, please? That's kind of the same question or kind of the same response that we had. Um, be aware if you're planning on traveling internationally, um, check the CDC website before you go. Make sure what your risk factors are. The travel notices are put out there as for public information and to help travelers decide what's appropriate for them. Um, there are controls put in place through these notices. I know uh, right now individuals returning from China are, if they're a China national, they're not being coming into the country. If you're coming back from one of those countries, you need to consider, I guess, before you plan to go, what would happen if I returned? Let's say, for example, you're going to a country where right now there's just a few cases. They're not on the CDC watch or travel list. But let's say while you're over there, it starts to spread. Now when you come back to the U.S., you may have to consider the fact that if the travel health website from the CDC or their determination is that this is a higher risk country than when you left, you may be subject to self-monitoring or um, quarantining yourself, even if you're asymptomatic, for up to 14 days. So again, this is a very fluid situation, so those are things you need to consider. Spring break is still a few days away, and things could change between now and then. So let's talk about masks. Seems like yes. there's a shortage of them. I believe I heard on NPR on the way over here that uh, Japan was going to stop exporting them, and they're one of the, the big export makers, I guess, of, of masks. Um, do masks work? How long can I use one? And uh, can I share it? <laughs> well, number one, no, don't ever share a mask. <laughs> That's like sharing your straw or um, no, don't do that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about masks. I'm glad you brought that up because it is a question we've had quite a bit. For general purposes, if you're a healthy individual, you do not need to walk around with a mask on. The, that is just not, it's not needed. Uh, the, this is a virus. Uh, if this is, we're in peak seasonal influenza time. Does anybody walk around with a mask on because they're afraid they're gonna get the flu? This is similar to a flu. It's a different type of virus. That's why it's called novels, because it's new. So wearing a mask in general for a healthy person, a face, you know, like a surgical face mask, is not needed. If you have been recommended by a healthcare provider because you have some pre-existing condition where you have severe asthma or something like that, and you're going to be going to places that, um, for some reason, your healthcare provider has recommended you wear one, then that's a different scenario. But in general use, you do not need to wear a mask. Now there's different types of masks. Um, one, a lot of people call them a face mask, and the medical world would call it a surgical mask. It's not a sealed mask, it just covers your nose and mouth, and those are often used in healthcare on the source patient, on the person that is actually has a disease or we suspect of having a disease. The reason we have them wear that if we're taking them somewhere out of a isolation or quarantine area is so that when they cough or sneeze, those droplets aren't contained within them. No, it's not sealed, but typically 
you're not having that person out of that isolation or quarantine room for a long period of time. The other type of mask that you hear about is called an N95. An N95 is a special type of mask that's used for, in my world, in healthcare, if a healthcare provider is caring for a person that has a certain type of infection that's airborne or droplet, we'll wear an N95 mask to protect ourselves. They are sealed. If you went and bought an N95 off the shelf, if you could find one, um, and you put it on, it may not be the appropriate mask for you, so it's pointless to wear. An N95 mask to wear appropriately, you have to be fit tested for it. They come in different sizes, different shapes, and based on the structure of your face, you have to wear a particular type of and size of mask. So it's really wasteful for both your money and for the community in general to be stockpiling N95 masks that don't fit you because there's really no protection and the healthcare and first responders in the world need those masks to protect themselves when they are caring for people that have diseases. So just to be clear, the typical surgical mask that you buy, not the, the special one, the right. N95, um, is that is mostly used to uh, prevent the spread of something that you're carrying yourself, Correct. right? Yes. So is it going to do anything to prevent, you know, if Matthew Kelly's sitting next to me and he's sick and I'm wearing the surgical mask, is that going to do anything for me? Well, it's not just droplet. I mean, we, we, we use the surgical mask so that when a person coughs or sneezes, their droplets don't come out. But if Matthew's sitting next to you and he doesn't have a mask on and he's sick. Which I don't. <laughs> and you're not sick. It is, and he's coughing and sneezing, that's getting in the air. That's also getting on surfaces. So that's where you hear this all the time. Don't touch your eyes, nose, and mouth. That's the main entry point for a lot of viral diseases, even bacterial diseases, is that we touch surfaces that other people have touched or contaminated, and then we touch our face. And then we, you know, so you can have a mask on all you want, but if you touch something or they cough and sneeze on you, and then once you take your mask off, you rub your nose or you blow your nose or you rub your eyes, that mask isn't going to help you then. All right, so we should all do what President Trump said he has done, which is not touch his face in months. Correct. Okay. <laughs> hey, his words, not mine. <laughs> all right, so let's move on over here to Ann Berger. Uh, Ann Berger, just again to remind our listeners, is the Associate Director of Study Abroad and Exchange Programs. We have a lot of students that are interested, myself included, in international travel and how their plans are being affected right now. So... Um, we, I think we both have a, a few questions. The first thing I want to know is, do we have students abroad right now in any of the countries that are considered high-level risk countries? Um, so right now, this uh, spring semester, we do not have any students that are at a level three. Um, fortunately, we did not have anyone um, in those countries. And if we had, we would have taken measures for them to return home um, immediately, which is what most universities in the U.S. are also doing. Okay, so I know Italy is a popular place for study abroad. I know we had some students there last summer. Um, are plans? Are there still plans for students to be going to Italy? Do you know in the upcoming months? 
So um, right now, um, any place that has a level three is tentatively a canceled location, unless that changes. Um, I do have some students who were planning on going to Italy, I'm working with a number of them on actually looking at changing locations to a different country, if that will work for them and what they need. Um, if not, some of them may just kind of be sitting tight to see whether or not they would still want to go to Italy if the level uh, were to decrease and that they're comfortable with that as well. How many study abroad experiences have been canceled so far tentatively? Um, right now, uh, we had one faculty-led trip at the end of May that was scheduled for South Korea, um, and that has officially been canceled. Um, it affected a pretty small number of students. I think there were four or five that were uh, signed up for that one. Uh, and then with the Italy, that one's kind of still the unknown, um, what's going to happen there with it kind of, at, as of the moment, it's canceled. But students who aren't leaving until June um, and later, there could be changes to where they could still do their program. Are there students who have already put down money for a travel abroad experience? Uh, and if so, uh, a canceled travel abroad experience. And if so, um, what happens with their money? Is there a refund? Uh, does it, is it on hold for the next opportunity they have to study abroad? What does that look like? So with a lot of the programs, students will book their own flights, um, and I do not necessarily know exactly who may have already booked a flight. Um, I collect that information before they leave, um, but they usually don't send it to me immediately when they book a flight. I have sent recommendations for anyone traveling, uh, planning to travel this summer that they hold off on booking flights at the moment, um, just to kind of wait and see how everything, um, hap what happens over the next couple of months. Um, so that they're not out money or that they purchase flights where they have some type of an insurance where they can get that uh, switch to a different date and potentially still use that flight. Um, most of the programs at this point, they don't have to pay for um, any program fees um, for most of our things for summer. Um, if there is a, a faculty-led program where they did, um, then we are still working with that faculty member and the students, again, to see what happens. We don't have anyone where it's been 100% canceled. So the South Korea trip, for example, um, luckily flights had not been booked or anything, so the students were able to get a full refund. So this is kind of a, a more of a general question you may or may not be able to answer, but, but typically as departments plan conferences, um, I'm planning actually to run a conference in Sierra Leone this summer, right? So uh, I happen to be in charge of that. My department doesn't. That, a lot of that's on me. Um, with, with the broader school, though, who's monitoring those kinds of activities that, that may be sponsored by a department um, or, uh, you know, or a certain program or whatnot, but they might not have the overall say on whether or not people go to it. Do you have any idea? I wouldn't really be able to comment to that specifically. I just oversee with a study abroad if it's a student who's going for academic credit or a faculty member who is taking students for credit, that that's my area that I would work with and handle. Sure. So do you think that um, if people are planning to go abroad um, in general, who should they be contacting within their, their schools or departments just to make sure everybody's on the same page? Do either of you have any comment on that? Uh, I mean, within your own department, I would recommend that you're uh, talk, talking to a department chair, dean of the college, and making sure where you're traveling um, is approved by your department. Um, we do have a 
uh, page for study abroad that is uh, wichita.edu slash study abroad travel advisories Um, and that talks about which can kind of you know be passed along really to anyone traveling um, internationally but it goes over um, some of the risks um, that you might have traveling internationally and what to be aware of and how to plan as well as to be mindful of travel advisory uh, levels um, that are published by the U.S. Department of State. Um, There are four levels. Um, Currently uh, we would not allow for students to study abroad at a level three or level four Level three is uh, non-essential travel and level four is um, do not um, travel there. Uh, And that also goes for the CDC with a level um, three travel advisory. So that would kind of be the same um, information that we would hope that um, departments would also be looking at and considering and following uh, when they're looking at having faculty travel um, for conferences or what other activities might be that are not directly related to study abroad. Sure. So what about the level two countries? I know President Golden put out a statement uh, at the beginning of the week um, talking about the difference between the level three and the level two countries. It seems like uh, I know he mentioned Japan as a level two country. Um, It seemed a little uh, unclear to me um, what that meant exactly. Are we telling people not to go to Japan or are we saying you might want to reconsider? Do you have any comment on that? So with Japan right now, it is at a level two. Um, If it were to be upgraded to a level three, then we definitely would um, not authorize the travel uh, for students to to go there on a program. Um, At the level two, though, with the cases that have um, come about and just not knowing how that situation will continue to evolve, um, we are discouraging students from going there. But as of right now, we're not at a point of not authorizing them. I have a comment about that. that sure. kind of goes back to the question we had earlier about planning travel. Um, planning to leave and looking at what's going on in the CDC and the State Department guidelines is one thing. Then you have to consider returning. Kansas Department of Health and Environment have said that anyone returning from a level two or three country would be subject to potentially monitoring and um, what they're calling self-isolation or self-quarantine, depending on your symptoms or no symptoms. So if you are planning to travel over spring break, you need to consider where you're at when you come back home and what the implications of that could be. Sure. So let's say I come back. Um, Maybe I haven't been out of the country, but I'm not feeling very well. I mean, we all know how Mm -hmm. airports work. We interact with a lot of different people. Should I just show up on Camille Childer's doorstep and be like, I don't feel good, um, but I'm wearing a surgical mask, so it's going to be okay? Uh, Or is there a better um, method for making sure that these things can get tested without us exposing other people? Well, not feeling good does not necessarily equate to COVID-19. So there's a lot of other things going around. Again, flu is still going around. So right now, as of today, because there's no cases in Kansas, our current guideline is that we do talk about travel when someone comes in and they have symptoms that would suggest a potential respiratory, particularly low respiratory disease. We ask questions about travel. We have mechanisms in place if someone comes up to the front desk and says, you know, I just came back from Italy and I'm coughing a lot and I have a fever. So we have ways to do what we would call a rapid assessment and bring that person back, put a mask on them, make sure that the health center staff have appropriate PPE on and get them assessed to see what their level of risk is. If that occurred at that point, then we would be 
also in touch with local and state health departments because they have certain screening factors as to whether or not that person qualifies or would need to be tested for COVID-19, which is being done through the state lab currently. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about comes down to personal responsibility, taking care of your own hygiene, yes. um, potentially subjecting yourself uh, to sort of quarantine um, if you feel like you're vulnerable or coming back from experience. Um, and, and it's easy for people to think, um, I'll do what I need to do. It's a lot more difficult um, to trust that everybody else is going to be doing what they should be doing. So could right. you speak to just like that that sort of concern and how how should students, uh, I guess, keep the perspective uh, that you can only do what you can do versus should you really be worried about other people? Right. Um, do you trust that somebody else is going to say, you know what, I, sh I should probably just take two weeks off to be safe and just uh, mm -hmm. stay at home? I wouldn't do that unless it was recommended by a medical professional. I, it's too know, bad. We could all use a vacation. I know. So that's kind of <laughs> nice. But I, so I think... I think we need to be careful with that kind of statement. Um, right now, the recommendations for the 14-day period are coming from medical professionals. If a person feels like they have a risk factor, that's something that they should probably call their doctor about or call Student Health Services. Or even um, not the Cedric County has instituted the 211 United Way number as well for questions about COVID. So there's a lot of resources. So I wouldn't just tell yourself you're going to stay home for 14 days because you're going to get in trouble over that. That was a dramatic one. I'm, I'm more mean like I can wash my hands, but how do right. I know this person washes their hands? <laughs> well, that's where you come into the fact that this is a community public health issue. We are all part of public. We're all part of community. We all need to be cognizant and aware and careful. We need to take care of each other. Public health is not an individual person running the show. It is a group effort. You know, we are a village, and this is going to take a village for this to be successful. So in a certain respect, you have to trust. You know, there's even in healthcare right now, if you walk into a hospital, there will be a sign on a, in, in a room that says, it's okay to ask me if I wash my hands mm -hmm. to a healthcare professional. And that's been in place for a very long time. We've been doing that for many years because hand hygiene is part of being a healthcare professional. So if you're in an ER or you happen to be at your doctor's office, it's okay for you to say, before you check my blood pressure, did you wash your hands? Because I didn't see you do that. Or you know, have you used any hand hygiene solution, You know, the hand sanitizer stuff? So I think we need to be aware personally, but we also need to realize that this is a community effort together. Awareness, but trust. Yes. <laughs> So uh, along those lines, and I think this is the last question that I have for you today. Um, can you please walk us through proper hand washing techniques? Because yeah. I thought that we had it all down pat, and then I ended up having a debate about it last night with some friends. So. Okay. <laughs> well, the best way to wash your hands is with soap and water. And normally, it's good to use friction and soap, and you want to wash your hands for about 20 seconds kind of a rule of thumb um, I used to teach children how to do hand washing is sing the happy birthday song or ABCs through twice, you know, and use that time to scrub. You want to make sure you're getting under your fingernails, scrub between your fingers. We actually used to do an activity with um, like glow in the dark solution that you put on your hands and then rub them together and then go wash your hands to see if you could remove it. And it's surprising 
how many people don't get that off. So when you're washing your hands, it's make sure you do all those things. Soap and water, friction, time. ABCs. Pardon? ABCs. ABCs. I think in London yeah. they're doing Baby Shark now. That yeah. could be. Wash your hands. <laughs> with are are there any more interesting songs that you would recommend people <laughs> wash their hands to? Well, you can sing whatever you like as long as it's about 20 seconds or more. <laughs> all right. All right. Do you have any other questions, Matt? No, I don't think so. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you both for being here. Again, we were covering COVID-19, and we will keep you informed at thesunflower.com.